Welcome to Take a Wonder with Shebs, the show that features some of the biggest travel bloggers, TV and radio personalities and journalists from all around the world. Each show aims to take my guest on a wonder and uncover topics that may not be discussed on their platforms or in the media, whether that's the state of travel blogging and journalism as it is today, or whether there's enough diversity within the industry. Perhaps what impact technology and social media have had on content creation, or in general the impact of current affairs on the industry. I also try and find out the journey behind each individual's success, as this is more important to me than the actual travel. I had the honour and privilege of talking to travel documentary maker and journalist Ash Bardwaj. Our main topic of discussion was around the state of journalism and why it was important to have a South Asian voice and narrative in the travel industry. Ash, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time. How are you? Yeah, I'm very good, thanks. I'm uh, excited about the fact that all the pubs are open again. Just explain a little bit about yourself. I guess what I'm best known for is travel, travel journalism. I have a monthly column in Telegraph Travel. I have a travel podcast with my friend Pitt Stewart, The First Mile. I film travel expeditions and documentaries. I do a bit of presenting. And I do reports for BBC Radio 4s from our own correspondents. So... Yeah, I think travel is definitely the common theme of everything I do uh, in telling that story by word, video or, or audio. We'll come on to your career in a little bit more detail slightly later. So I usually take it back and ask everyone where the initial love for travel started for people. So for you, when did it start? Well, it probably really started to ground in me when I was 17. When I was a kid, I really loved Star Trek and I really loved science and I really love maps of the world so all of which sort of has this sense of discovery and journey and seeing what else is out there if you think about Star Trek it's really about just going off on an adventure and discovering interesting things in interesting places and different cultures so that was rooted there um but you know I wasn't someone that read loads of travel books and was always thinking about going traveling I loved the Palin documentaries Michael Palin that probably helped build my appetite for it and then it was when I was 17 and I went on a rugby tour to Australia, New Zealand and the Cook Islands. Uh, uh, my mum worked as a cleaner and she saved up the money to pay for me to go on that trip. So that was pretty remarkable. And she said, you'll never get an opportunity like this to go and see these places and have it sort of organised so easily. And that we'll be able to, well, she worked really hard to afford it, but she thought that that was the best opportunity she could give me. And it really built an appetite and a hunger for me to go off and do those, do more travel afterwards. Education-wise, then, what, what did you actually study in school? Because you mentioned a couple of things there, journalism. Well, I'd always planned on going into science. I like, I loved science. I thought I was going to go and be like a physics researcher or go and work at JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratories, or NASA. That was something I would have loved to have done. Um, my A-levels were chemistry, physics, maths, and further maths. And it was a shame because... I really enjoyed English. I really enjoyed geography. And I had to give those things up to focus on those sciences. Um, And I love the sciences. But when I got to university, I was doing chemistry, molecular physics. And I switched over after a few weeks to philosophy, just because I wanted to have something that was a bit more wide ranging. Uh, And I really enjoyed the writing, the developing ideas and and thoughts. So philosophy is great because it gives you critical thinking. and analysis you literally here's a here's an idea and then you come up with the it's a thesis or proposition you have to come up with the antithesis the anti-anti-thesis 
and the sort of synthesis where you sort of work it through. And I think that's a kind of like, I did debating club in, in my sixth form, even though I was doing all the sciences. And I think working through ideas is a really useful way to develop the skills you need for journalism. Um, I never studied journalism as a master's, but I really like the writing that I do now to kind of explore a theme. A lot of people that I've met didn't necessarily go into journalism and would pick it up as time went on. Because with writing, it only be, only comes natural to you the more writing you do. So you don't. I guess when you said you didn't necessarily do a master's in journalism, I guess nowadays you don't really need to. Blogging is a way of doing it, and then you can pursue it, I guess, as a, as a journalism career. I think that one of the problems you have is, you know, people talk about the media, or they talk about journalists, and it covers a, a vast array of things. If you go to university and do a master's in journalism, you study a lot about sort of like the the, the specific skill and ethics of quality journalism, which is quite useful. And then you have some journalists who just write about a topic, and then you also have to have the ability to write well. So you know, there's different things. Not every journalist has done a master's in journalism, but I think if you do do a master's in journalism, it does ground you in some of the skills around fact checking, writing shorthand. Um, some of the principles of investigative journalism that are quite useful. Um, I took the route of writing loads of blogs. So I developed the sort of critical thinking and writing skills or consolidated them through the philosophy degree. And then I was writing travel blogs. That was, that was how I developed that um, skill. I think something I've got back into doing more now is referencing everything. Whenever I write an article, I put references in because I think – one of the problems you have is anyone anyone can call themselves a journalist now. And often it's just, this is what I've read on the internet or this is what I think. And I think if you're putting something in somewhere like, I mean, you know, I don't agree with all of the political opinions in The Telegraph or The Times or The Guardian, but what all of those papers do have is an adherence. You can't lie. You can't make stuff up. You can't do what... Um, proper fake news stars which you just put opinions out there and put misinformation out there and disinformation and i think that's one of the risks we have about the truth decay. truth decay you have all these guys who call themselves journalists going over to syria who are basically shown around by the syrian regime um vanessa beal i think is one of them you know just goes around being shown syria by the syrian regime Syrian regime like look we're not killing anybody we're not gassing people we're not using barrel bombs oh and by the way the world white helmets are all um they're all baddies funded by mi6 uh, and look our russian friend will say around as well and she thinks she's being a journalist because she's showing the other side whereas actually she's just being a, a mouthpiece for the propaganda of the Syrian regime so you know you have these challenges when you're dealing with journalism you've got there's a responsibility i think and um I, th I think that's probably where an element of training or working with a good editor who teaches you about fact-checking and so on is, is yeah. a useful thing to do. Where do you see journalism now, then, uh, the way it is today? You know, yeah. And where do you see it going? Because I, I, I would say in the next 10 years, you're probably not going to have any newspapers. That's probably going to be moved on to online. So I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that that's something that people have said a lot. I think there's... There's enough people that still like linear formats of stuff. There's enough people that still like newspapers that that will work. I know that if I buy a newspaper, my 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 news quality consumption improves because you're forced to read stuff that you wouldn't otherwise read. You read it from cover to cover. 
you read the news, you read the opinion, you read the analysis, you start to get a feel for it. Rather than just getting what's pushed at you, you're seeking it and taking your time. Things like uh, The Week, which is a news magazine, are excellent and vital. And I think that's a really good way to um, understand journalism well because you see the way the same story has been covered in different newspapers. So it's looking at opinion as well as the news coverage. Um, a lot of organisations do have fact checkers. I think there are probably more fact checker jobs now than ever before. Uh, there's a great article on The Walrus, which is a Canadian news site the other week about the challenge of misinformation, a guy who was a fact checker and how fact checking is a more common thing. But, you know, fake news started out as groups in, I think it was North Macedonia, what's now Northern Macedonia, um, creating clickbait, fake news, like genuinely completely made up stuff. Like the Pope endorses Donald Trump, people click on it and then you, they're incentivized to create stuff because the more clicks you have, the more ad revenue you get. The social media companies have a business model that depends on outrage and depends on clicks and depends on emotional stimulation. Therefore, you're going to be pushed towards that kind of stuff. And that's the way many people consume or reach their news. Trump then weaponized the term fake news uh, by using it to just mean something he disagreed with or disliked. Mm. Or, uh, uh, and so the term fake news itself has become useless. Misinformation and disinformation are more useful terms. Disinformation is false information that is deliberately created to deceive you. Misinformation is uh, that could be that same ins- information that is passed on, but not with a deliberate intent to deceive. What does that mean for journalism? We have a problem, which is that um, fact checking is now also being as weaponized as the word fake news. You know, good journalism is the BBC. It is good journalism. Um, it's brilliant journalism. Um, and understanding, you know, what, what do the Telegraph and the Guardian do that is different to the BBC? Well, they have opinion. And sometimes, whether that's uh, right of centre or, or left of centre, um, they're both pushing a form of identity politics, really. And, and that, that, that can amplify division. The difficulty you have now is that as, more, as less and less people consume media through linear formats like the BBC and get it through um, through their favoured advertising-driven platforms, you're getting more division. You're not being exposed to the other side of ideas. So that's where I think it's going. What you said as well, by the way, uh, everyone calls themselves journalist. The reason why I, I brought this up is because a lot of bloggers who have a lot of following so back in the summer last year there was just one blogger i didn't have a spat with her but it was sort of had about i think around about two hundred thousand following through you know facebook twitter instagram you name it and the blog itself and was saying oh don't do this do this do this because so and so so when i asked oh so you've first-hand experienced this i said no no no, no i haven't so how can you write something that you've not experienced firsthand? You're just going off what you may, may think will happen. So, all search on Wikipedia. And you mentioned as well another another interesting fact is that advertisers uh, know now they to invest um, to advertise your brand. I guess a blogger or a favorite writer, you know, if they've got a lot of following, that is the best way to advertise your product. So, there's a. I, I guess the the issue is. You can't really stop it, though, can you? You know, there's no way of policing it unless there's regulations brought in. Yeah, and I think there has to be regulations because 
you know, like newspapers like the Telegraph, the Times, the BBC, not the BBC, Telegraph, the Times, and the Sun or the Mail, they print something false. They have to issue a retraction. I mean, they issue it on a tiny little box on page six, but they have to issue it, and they have addresses that you can write to them and complain. If a blogger does it, there's no. This is the difference, I think, between a journal, a proper decentness. And, you know, <laughs> I say that, you know, you've got journalists that are making up uh, stuff and, 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 and driving division. So, you know, I don't, I don't think the old ways are necessarily better. Um, but th- th- there's an accountability there that you don't necessarily have with a blogger or someone else. And, yeah, I think that's why regulation is important. I think, you know, some of the people calling out for regulation the most are Facebook because Facebook... Uh, in a position like, well, you know, we can't control this ourselves. You need to tell us what the regulation is so that we can do it. And and government says, well, we don't want to enforce regulation because that goes against free speech. So it's very, it's a difficult world. And I think it, there's a lot of challenge around misinformation, disinformation. What do you trust? Well, go to trusted news sources. You know, when people say, I don't trust the BBC, it's like, that's you because you just don't like what you're hearing. <laughs> if if um if people are pro Brexit, they don't like the fact that the BBC has authentically reported on the downsides of Brexit. If they're um anti Brexit, they don't like the fact that BBC reports on things like the vaccine program doing better in the UK than it is in Europe. But, you know, those are those are facts. Those, those are the things that have actually happened. And uh, people, you know, people like to go to where they just get told that they, their thoughts are right. The BBC, for example, is as impartial as they can get. You know, you see a lot of pre- presenters. I think uh, back in the summer last year, again, uh, one of the Newsnight presenters was told it was to do with Dominic Cummings, you know, breaking the lockdown rules and got reprimanded because it was an opinion. So, uh, Emily Maitis is uh, cold open on uh, Newsnight where she said, they got it wrong and the government got it wrong. Yeah, that's what it was, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, the fact is she was reprimanded, you know, and, and they were like, I, th- I think there is, a, there is a truth that some people don't feel represented in the BBC, by the BBC. The problem with the BBC is that because it's publicly funded, they have to be as impartial as the, you know, given an opinion, uh, you're going to get people divided, aren't you? And I think, I can't remember how many complaints, it's like 20 odd thousand complaints that came along. Yeah, so the differences between impartiality and balance and then misrepresentation, you know, like, you know, there was a big thing. They, what's good is they do, they do test themselves and they think about this, you know, whereas if you turn around to the mail, which is, in, or, 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 or Breitbart, Right, bar, they're like, no, we're not going to change anything. If you turn around to the mail, well, we're like, this is our opinion line. This is, this is, we are, we have this stance. That's what we want to say. At least the BBC does interrogate it. Sometimes they get it wrong, but I think, you know, they have a very different role. One of the things I want to talk to you about is a piece that you wrote last year. Now, this was a piece where. I think it came after. I'm not too sure it was correct or not, but came after sort of like the the Black Lives matter movement and you wrote about uh, travel is seen through a white lens now it's a really interesting piece because in the piece that wasn't what i wrote that was the headline that was put you also wrote actually that potentially the people who are reading this will be from a caucasian background so i want to ask you how i mean you you broke into the travel sector um it's an industry 
you I don't know you feel as though it's hasn't had the Asian or the South Asian uh, representation, especially when it comes to the UK, because uh, I can't really see any lead TV hosts who are in the travel. How do you see that sort of improving? So I think you just have to do good work. I think, you know, writing articles like that, where you, you explain to people, if you are brown and you're traveling places, you will have a different experience. You will have different thoughts, you'll have different feelings, you'll have different opinions, and you may be treated differently. So that's not always a bad thing. Sometimes that's a good thing. Like if I go to Nepal, people are like, oh, he's this funny brown guy hanging out with all the white people. That's interesting. I'm going to go and chat to him. Or the point I made about um, a Maru guy in New Zealand who was like, uh, oh, yeah, you know, it's like you're Indian. The British screwed that place over too. So like, there's, there's a sort of like interesting... A sort of like uh, unlocking of doors in certain places by having uh, by being from a uh, diversity can do that. So I talk about this in the army as well. Diversity is important because we are dealing in a world that is not this kind of simple, simple monoethnic nationalist world of seventy-five years ago. We live in a world where we're constantly being engaged with different ideas, different thoughts, undergoing um, assaults from. Um, nefarious agents or uh, people with malintent to put misinformation towards us we are in a connected global world and you need diverse thought in organizations in writing to be able to make sense of all of that so diversity is vital to succeed in understanding and interpreting the world you know there's no point in me writing about the experiences of women in london because i just don't have that insight i can write about how what i have learned about becoming more aware of the privilege I have as a man that, uh, and becoming aware of the challenges that women face. So I can write about that, but I can't write about what it's like to be a woman. Um, but when I read a woman's writing, sometimes they will have insights that are just inaccessible to me as a man. Like not, it's not just about the problems people face, but the insights that they give you, you're like, wow, I hadn't even thought about that. Now, if women are traveling around the world, particularly in, in countries which are more patriarchal, women are going to find it much easier to tell the stories of women around the world. So diversity in gender is vital for good travel storytelling, right? Because um, otherwise you just don't get access to that story. India, for example, is a very well-traveled place. And I've been to India, I assume you've been to India, but you, only, you see it only from, I guess, a again, a Caucasian person's perspective so for me india was very very um i found it difficult originally getting to it i had problems getting a visa because my background being from bangladesh they kept asking me when i went to get the visa have you got a pakistani background uh things like that and i had to believe it or not i had to indian visa bureaucracy is the worst i'm dealing with that at the moment like, to try and become a uh, a world leading nation they need some of their visa program well the first question well the first question the person asked me was are you so you're not an indian you're not from an indian background so are you pakistani and i said no i'm not uh, i think my technically we i mean when when we when the partition happened and this is what i found out recently because my granddad passed away and on his he never actually had a, a bangladeshi passport he only had a Pakistani passport and then it was a British passport so technically you know I could have said well actually yeah my granddad had a Pakistani passport but I never did but 
they, so it was difficult just just that it was so i had to go down to to london i had to pay like extra to get that perspective out is is really important i think yeah and i think it's just like you know as i wrote about in the article i want to hear about what it's like for black british people to travel to south africa i mean the only story i hear about south africa are people going for the rugby the cricket and the safari and it's white men usually um all drinking wine well that's cool but you know um, or, or you get them going, uh, you get people going and writing about, you know, the experience in townships. And uh, if, if you've got a black British man or woman writing about it, you're going to get a much more nuanced insult. So it's just, I will learn more about South Africa. There'll be just a more diversity of travel writing. Um, so I just think it's better for everybody. We all gain by having diversity in travel writing because we gain new insights into places. So it, it's a win, you know, and I think it's not, the whole diversity and inclusion thing is not about you need to, this is bad, this is wrong, you need to tick the boxes. This was that about 10 or 15 years ago. But now, you, like the great thing about diversity and inclusion now is you can sell it as a winning uh, winning narrative. Like, this is the benefit you get by having these new insights and these stories. And that's not doesn't mean that every story I write is about my experience as a brown person. Not every story I write is about India. Um, not every story that I write in my monthly column for the Telegraph is about race. But when I do, there's just additional insights. And I, I don't fall into quite as many um, uh, propaganda traps as other, pe- other people do. You know, and when I go to places, someone goes, oh, yeah, you know, the British just came here and they were, just, you know, they were great. I'm like, really? If you question things a bit more because you've got additional historical knowledge from your family or something, then it would just mean that you question things a bit more when you go travel. How do you get more people from the South Asian background to to be in the world of travel. Tell stories that are relevant to them. That's why you need more diversity. You know, when I travelled to India when I was 19, I couldn't find any books written by British Indians. I don't think any existed back then. There's nobody writing about what it was like to be a British Indian person travelling in India. It just wasn't there. So, like, the perception is that's just not something that British Indian people do. It's something that white kids from private schools do. That's the perception that, is, that it, you, you can arrive at. Whereas by now, there's people like, you know, Satnam Sanghera, who's a Times journalist. He's written about growing up as a British Indian, about um, the empire. He's done documentaries about John Wallabag. John Wallabag, if I pronounce that correct. Um, Amrit Tamaska. And you've got Manisha Rajesh, who's written the book Around the World in 80 Trains. She started with Around India in 80 Trains. So all of a sudden, you have stuff that resonates and is relevant to you. Now, if organisations want to survive, they're going to have to diversify. You know, if the Telegraph wants to stick with just only appealing to um, conservative voting, Brexit voting, I'm not saying this is what the Telegraph appeals to only. You know, they're, they're, they're stuck because that is a shrinking population over time. But if you want to go for more diversity and bring in more stories and narratives, you're going to appeal to more people. So for media industries to survive, for media organisations to survive, they have to become more diverse. They do that by bringing more diverse voices. And then that inspires the next generation to do it. There's a phrase, you can't be what you can't see. So until you see people like you on there, you're not going to be inspired to do it. I, th- I think that's probably the the, the trick there. Do you know who Priyanka Chopra is? She's an actress. So she... I remember her because I used to watch it. I don't watch Bollywood movies now, but she broke into the world of Bollywood after winning Miss World. But now she's in Hollywood. So Indian women or, you know, Asian women in 
Holly, uh, back back in India, they'd be like, well, actually, I don't want to just be a Bollywood actress. I want to be a Hollywood actress. So you could say she's opened up the door for a lot of women, uh, I guess men as well. So I guess you can open the door, leave it open, and it's easier then for people to walk through it, isn't it? You, then also, you also need the commissioners, the editors, and the people that give people jobs and say yes to stuff to recognise that. You know, I think there's a lot. There's a lot of uh, virtue signalling where people say, you know, we're going to improve our diversity. It's like cool, but you've just commissioned another white man to make a TV program. Right. Yeah, well, we just don't think they're going to resonate with the audience. It's like, well, that's because you have a stuck audience. Whenever you try new talent, you're always going to nearly always get an audience drop. Um, but I think you need sort of like good, authentic adventure stuff done by people of diversity, people of different uh, people of different backgrounds. Yeah, actually, I had one guy on my show. Uh, his name's Paris Norris. He's from a Indian background. So he's got a TV show. Well, he's got a show on Amazon called Guy in Dubai. Uh, but he moved across to Dubai to do it. He didn't necessarily get the TV networks to do it in the UK. Uh, but actually, he's a brilliant guy. Example, uh, you know, started started off in business, but pursued a transition towards television. And he's got deals, not just on TV, but he's got it with like airlines and stuff so uh, he's a great guy to sort of look at and go actually he's done it and you know if you listen to the show that i did with him it was all, all about the business mindset uh, and that's the important thing the mindset of making because if you don't believe in yourself then who else is going to yeah and i think it's also just um you just have to make really good content um yeah that's true <laughs> yeah i think it's hard to tell good stories and find actually generally interesting new things but there's um Riz Ahmed, who is a actor, rapper and actor, he went to Merchant Tailors, which is one of the you know big public schools of England up in Harrow. He went there on a scholarship. I think he's from uh, West London. Um, then moved into acting. Was doing fairly well, you know, uh, but he always was getting cast in the same role in England, which was the terrorist, pretty much. But he was in Four Lions. That's what you, you may have seen him in, which is a great film. But he had to move to America to do other things. And he's just done a film now where he plays a drummer who goes deaf. But, you know, like it's, it is hard to, to, to break through in the UK because despite what people say, like I think there is a lot of unconscious bias, a lot of unconscious assumptions. And because TV in particular is always, you know, it's it's... It's it's low risk. TV is low risk. T uh, product uh, TV channels don't want to take risk on people, so I think there you know there's it's harder to break in than than is often portrayed. I think. So for yourself, have you found it frustrating? Then uh, I, I I guess I would you want your own TV show? I guess I said to you, there's not many people with leads. Would that be an ambition of yours? Yeah, I mean I've been writing. Uh, development ideas for 14 years and nothing has gone through yet if you're doing anything for 14 years and you put in hundreds of days of work and you've got nothing back like you probably tell someone to quit that so but why, why is it that you've not heard anything back wrong time bad ideas <laughs> wrong contacts you know like, uh, it's so many stars have to align for tv a tv thing to go i'm not saying mm -hmm. i'm not saying it's i don't think it's by the way i don't think it's like racism people aren't like we don't want no. brown people on tv I don't think that's what it is. I think it's a case of the TV is conservative with a small C and they go with what works um, or they go with people who are similar to the people they've had before. And I think to 
Um, yeah, I just haven't come. I, I, the stars haven't aligned for me. But isn't that where you can't do it online now? So you can go on YouTube and put it on there. So show show them that this is what you can do, and then maybe go back. Podcast is one way of doing it. But you've got your the the first mile you've got on there, but you can prove to them this is what I this is what you're missing out on, and show them. Maybe they don't. I don't. Sometimes I just don't think they care. Yeah, I mean you could do that, but I think you know just because someone does well on YouTube or Instagram doesn't mean they'll translate well onto TV. And I think you've seen it a lot in the last few years where production companies have gone, wow, this person's got a million followers. Let's put them on TV. They'll, that'll be mm. an instant hit. We'll get a million views. And sometimes people just aren't very good on TV. Like, it's so, you know, what I was going back to before about the like the freedom, the independence, and the storytelling that you get on YouTube and the downsides of YouTube versus the lack of freedom and the upsides of TV. Like, they're, very, they're very different mediums. They both happen mm. to be video. They're very different media. A podcast isn't a regular program, necessarily. And I think, you know, if someone does really well on YouTube, why would they bother worrying about TV? You know, I think they're just, they're very different, they're very different worlds. Uh, TV gives you, I guess, a, a credibility and it's an establishment thing. But I think, you know, that's, I mean, that's what, one of the great things about the way things are at the moment is you don't need to go onto TV to do well. Uh, do you think the way things we do documentaries the way we tell stories is going to change because a lot of the stuff is moving towards online, I guess. And it's very short. Uh, there's one guy that I follow and his documentary, I mean, he's got millions of followers. Uh, he does it on YouTube and it's only 10 minutes. Um, uh, Drew Brinsky. Have you heard of Drew Brinsky? He's based in America. Um, you know, it, it, so his work, it's only 10 minutes, but you only get snippets, you see. So, do you feel as though that could change the way, you know, David Attenborough tells his story? It's like an hour long, two hours, three hours. Do you think that will change over the next few years? Yeah, so I think one of the problems you get with people that are doing this stuff on their own is you don't have the same kind of top cover. It's the same with the journalism versus a blogger. You know, if you work as a journalist in an organisation like the BBC, you get like this layers of fact-checking. If you want to travel and make stories, just go and do it on YouTube. That's a much easier way to do it. But what you have is you it's you, you get much more creative, innovative stuff. You get some really interesting stories. You get some really interesting ways to film. Um, you get some really interesting insights. But then you can also end up, you're stuck in your paradigm when you're traveling. You don't have like a director and a researcher and, uh, and, and the crew and the logistics and the money that allows you to access or learn new stories. Um, but at the same time, you're completely free, so you don't come with all the hassle and bureaucracy of doing it with a product with a, with a TV production company. So you have like there's different things that come about as a product of of of, of both YouTube stuff. Though uh, you could do it unplanned, can't you? So I, I, with a television show, everything I guess is planned to an extent. Uh, you don't know obviously what's going to happen depending on what your what your idea of uh, of your show is. It's, it's sure everything's planned. We do a YouTube one properly, isn't it? Like if you if you sit and you you plan your what you're going to do. I mean, I bet you, you know, Drew Binsky. I bet he plans his stuff. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, like they do. You know, you know, if you're if you're doing this as a business, doing regular, you're going to do like the normal production the way you do for the way you do for your podcast. Like just because it's on YouTube doesn't mean that people aren't doing the research for it. They just don't have the additional uh, resources. And what does that mean? That means you can kind of get stuck in a, in your um, your own heuristics. You don't have your heuristics challenged as much, I think. 
So just outside of work and travel, um, what do you do to sort of, well, down, downtown really? Have you got anything that you'd like to do? Yeah, not much at the moment. I'm in the Army Reserve. That takes up a lot of my time. So that's every Tuesday night, uh, every fourth weekend. And because I'm a company too, I see there's a lot of admin in between. That takes up a lot of time. Um, I mean, it's we've been pretty limited for the last year just because of lockdown. So I've kind of forgotten what to do with my free time. Read books a lot. Love reading sci-fi still. Just been finishing off the Expanse series. I'm just looking around to so find the book for it. That's what I'm looking about. Yeah, so the Expanse, that's a great series. I play tag rugby. It's good fun. A uh, bit of photography. I mean, it sort of ties in with travelling. Uh, and I'm very excited about going back to the pub again. But, you know, walking is one of my favourite things to do. Or going for bike rides around London. Getting lost. So... Just going, well, I'll go there and see what route I can find on the way there. Put my phone in my pocket. Don't look at it for a few hours. See where I end up. See what cool streets I can find. Yeah, I think that's probably, that's how I got through lockdown. It's been pretty good fun, actually. And you also got married, by the way, I recall. You posted, in fact, you posted that you went um, went to Italy, wasn't it, for your honeymoon. What was that like, actually, travelling during a pandemic? That was really stressful because like, you didn't know what was going to they were sort of starting to close countries down quite quickly and yeah. uh, and at short notice. That was really hard. And then because you went during September, was it September October, wasn't it? October. And we went to Sicily, and they the week we were there, they were talking about bringing in the travel corridor. So it was very hard uh, closing the travel corridor. So it's very hard to relax because we we're like we're gonna have to book a flight back at any minute. That was tough. You know, I'm glad we got away. It was definitely worth it. But it really has an impact on your ability to relax and enjoy something because you know that at any minute you might have to deal with something. I actually went to Turkey from like September to October and they actually changed the rules. So they said when I came back, I had to quarantine. So I just decided to stay longer. Uh, so you're right. It was a little bit stressful. I did move freely within the country, but the back of the mind, you know, it's like I better get back sometime soon because otherwise be stuck and it was i don't know about you but i found it where there's like no no one really there i couldn't really socialize with anyone you know i do a lot of backpacking so no backpackers so it was it was a bit of a strange time to do it but it was interesting actually i, I can't say that i didn't enjoy the experience at the same time if that makes any sense yeah well there's no such thing as like the perfect travel experience everyone's like there's a sort of idea that if you follow, if you do the right things and follow certain plans, then you will end up having like a perfect journey or a perfect experience. And I don't think that's true. Every every experience has, every time you travel has challenges. As long as you're enjoying things along the way, I, yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm glad I'm glad that we're traveling again. But there's there's going to be increased frictions. But look, I think I think in Britain we're pretty complacent. We have a passport that takes us to every country in the world. And yeah. I think 150 of them we can enter without any pre-planned visa um, application. Like, it's pretty easy to get most countries in the world. Or, or I mean, it might be a bit of a noise, like, you know, trying to get into India or somewhere, but you can do it. Whereas oh, yeah, yeah. If you're Nepalese, to try and come to... Like, for me to go to Nepal, I can get a visa on arrival in Nepal, right? If you're a Nepalese person trying to come to the UK, you have to do months of application. You have to prove that you've got a flight back. You've got to prove you've got a certain amount of money in the account. But it's not easy. And, you know, we're just starting to find the experiences as, as British people of traveling that the rest of the world has to put up with. So I think it's, you know, quite good that we're, we're forced to really take 
take stock of our travel privilege and, and make the most out of it when we can travel. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Just finally, any new developments that we can look forward to? Um, Pip and I are going to do season two, the first Mars. So that will be coming out sometime in the next couple of months. And then developing some ideas for TV. Who knows if they'll go ahead? You have no idea what will work and what won't. Like you just put stuff in, see what comes up and see what doesn't. I think, I think it's 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 tough. And I think like, there's such a fixation on trying to... I think I have definitely distracted myself and got too wrapped up in the idea of trying to get a TV show or try and, or, or that is what is required for success. I think having the column at the Telegraph has been brilliant because that gives me some credibility, gives me something to work towards, and it gives me something that I'm accountable for. I can't put out there. I, I mean, I'll, I'll put an idea in, and every now and again, the editor, Ben, will be like, nah, yeah, I think you need to do something else. <sighs> work harder. But so, but it's good. You know, I've got someone that, 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 that's keeping me, keeping me honest. But it's good that I have an editor yeah, yeah. that says, I think you can do better. I think we could, you know, focus in on this a bit more. I think we've lost a bit of the theme here. That's great. TV takes so much time, so much emotion, so much energy. And if it works, it's an amazing outcome. But I don't think, I think if you just ignore that and focus on everything else, you can have a really good time. And I've stopped trying and I'm enjoying my work more again. You know, I, most of my income still comes from video production, but the travel that I do, because I'm writing for the papers, I'm writing for a specific audience, I really work hard at it. I really like forcing me to do different things and think in a different way. I want to thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate your time. And I'll speak to you very soon. Hey, thanks very much. You can follow my guests on all of their social media platforms. The details are in the description. That's it for Take a Wonder with Shebs. Don't forget to follow me on all of my social media platforms. Until next time, bye for now.